Happy Corona to you. Yes, happy Corona. It's been kind of crazy out there in the world. It's both a tough time for music and a good time for music. It definitely gives every musician no excuse to not get their shit together right now. That's how I'm approaching this, yeah. Yeah, all right. That's fair. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Connie Hahn, a pianist, composer, and performer of straight-ahead jazz. Her forthcoming album, Iron Starlet, is available June 12th from Mac Avenue. Hahn spoke to me on Skype. I saw these singles that you've dropped in Spotify. Yeah, those are from the forthcoming album, Iron Starlets, due out on June 12th. Yeah, on Mac Avenue. So I heard the two singles from that. Cool. Uh, and then I checked out Crime Zone and your Rogers. I think I got the Connie Han oeuvre. It's interesting because as a jazz musician, I have many different sides to my musicianship and... Iron Starlet reflects, I, I guess you would say, the primary side of my musicianship and artistry in performing in a group setting, uh, performing particularly in the straight-ahead art of social music, um, playing in the vein of my heroes, McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones. I'm really big on drum piano dynamics. So Kenny Kirkland and Jeff Tane Watts, I take influence from that. That has been a huge part of what informs my musicianship and the focus, being able to really play and make something happen with a rhythm section. But recently, I've also become very serious about solo piano in the vein of Art Tatum, particularly. Mm -hmm. I've been studying him a lot. So not a lot of that is on recording, but like that's definitely a side of you know what I do that I take very seriously as part of my philosophy and committing to jazz in my life. Hold I, on, let, let's yeah. let's talk about that philosophy for a second because yeah. in my notes, I'm looking at them right here. I have you are a straight ahead jazz player at this point. It seems like you would agree with that assessment. What is your jazz language or idiom a result of? Like what's going into the mix? You mentioned McCoy Tyner already. Yeah. The, the recently late and very great McCoy Tyner. Yeah, God bless his soul. is in the mix for you like yeah how are you at 23 you say okay i'm a straight ahead jazz player how have you come to this it's the music that resonates with me the most and i am strongly of the opinion 
that playing straight ahead jazz is not the equivalent of playing classical music, which I feel is a pretty common consensus in both the jazz musician community as well as the jazz critic community that playing straight ahead jazz now is antiquated, which I uh, fervently disagree with. I believe that the heart of what makes jazz what it is, is the spontaneity and the ability to think on your feet and to create something out of nothing. I mean, not literally nothing, because it's always based on a foundational language, but the core of it is that you are still creating and you're still creating something that is unique to any given moment. So my goal in studying and continuing to record and perform this music is to show that you don't have to deconstruct the building blocks of the jazz language to be original. And I don't like using the word original because I don't, I don't think anything is really that original, save for very exceptional music. Like I think Ravel is original. I think Artatum is original, but you know, at the core of it, it's that I still think that you can play what is known jazz language and still interpret in ways that are endlessly new, combining different themes and melodies and different aesthetics and soundscapes in different ways that to me is still in the spirit of jazz, which is improvising and particularly improvising in a way that connects with humans, with the humans that you're playing with, as well as the humans that you're playing for, the listeners. At the core of it, I don't think it is in good artistic interests to be original for the sake of not wanting to be like everybody else. I feel that it is a very common trap that artists can fall into where they say, well, I don't want to be known as the carbon copy of this legacy. Like, I don't want to be known as, oh, that person tries to sound like McCoy Tyner. That person mm-hmm. tries to sound like Oscar Peterson. I really think that it's important to make music that is good and make music that is meaningful, regardless of what language that's, that's based on. Let's quantify, if we can, what is known. I think you, your term was known jazz language. And for that matter, straight ahead jazz, for some of our listeners who maybe don't know what that entails. Could you talk about the space that those terms occupy? Yeah. I don't want to say it's based on bebop, but it is. I mean, it it definitely is. I, w- mm-hmm. I would say that it's like the super base foundation in which layers of history, like you have the 1940s, bebop, Charlie Parker, Bud Powell, they crafted this extremely logical harmonic language that's really based on Bach, but they interpret it with rhythm and groove and swinging their asses off to be the main vehicle of creating great music. So that's the foundation. And then as you move forward through that history, you get to hard bop where it isn't so focused on intellectually like getting to all the changes it's more based on soul rhythm and blues so you get this evolution which then goes into mccoy tyner who i think pioneered the modal language of piano along with john coltrane utilizing static harmony 
and pentatonics. I mean, the classic Coltrane harmony cycling in thirds. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really technical. The main thing is that it evolved from bebop to hard bop to this modal language where musicians deliberately said to themselves, I am sick of being confined by a particular harmonic structure and I want to focus on elevating the music rhythmically and spiritually a la John Coltrane Quartet. So to answer your question, I mean, it doesn't start from bebop because it starts from the blues. It starts from 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 that foundation in New Orleans. But in context to specifically what I'm talking about, yeah, it's, it's based on bebop evolving into the modal language pioneered by McCoy Tyner and then adopted by guys like Kenny Barron, you know, and everybody. I mean, Chikoria, Brad mm-hmm. Meldau. And is there a line in the sand for you <laughs> where you're saying, okay, this is where I'm stopping? Like, there's That's there's a great question. I love that question. A- <laughs> yeah, for me, the line... It really kind of stops at Brad Meldow, to be honest. Is he the last tonalist? Define what you mean by that. Meldau always kind of talks about this Brahmsian notion of smiling through tears and this major minor juxtaposition. And he's still very sort of rooted in, in modality, but in tonality at the same time. I guess that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not going to do anything that, like, th- there will be no no abstract music on a Meldau album or dissonance to the point of unrecognizability. I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. So it's not like the postmodern, like I'm not too informed on that side of the coin, but like the super, super modern, like classical composers, like I don't think he goes there. I mean, I consider him to be still, even when he is at his, at his most abstract playing in the trio, he's still conforming to the super, what you said, (laughs) the traditional harmony. Yeah, to me, he's still playing music. I think you know what I mean, but I want to make sure the listeners know what I mean. Yeah, no, keep going. Yeah, so I I think the answer to your question is yes. He's still on, he still like has like major respect for and makes it a point of keeping the integrity of, of what makes music music as far as like, Brahms or Bach. I mean, I know right now he's been posting a lot of improvisations over Bach fugues. So I think he's like super into that and he he won't go beyond that. Or he probably thinks that going beyond that would make it not music, which I agree with. Right now, at least, I, I that's what I hear, you know. And I really think that it kind of stops at Brad as far as like the language evolution um, as far as I can tell, because, you know, when you're living during the time of when art is being created, it's hard to have a perspective. So maybe there is great shit happening right now. And I just because they're not dead 
and I'm not looking back. It's like, it's just happening right now. So I'll say that. Um, but back to Brad, he's, he's like the guy who actually still studied freaking everything. He was so thorough in his formative years. When you hear him play on the older 90s recordings on like Criss Cross with Jimmy mm-hmm. Cobb and Peter Bernstein, it's so swinging and you can, he doesn't have to prove any further that he, like he's like legitimate. And I think it's so important to be that kind of a player. And there are plenty of players now who do that, but I really still think that he's like the last one to really push them, push the language forward and still keep that integrity of the jazz language that I'm talking about. Yeah. So maybe that's it. It's a pushing forward, but maintaining integrity. Evolving the language while still having a direct and most importantly, informed and educated line in, uh, in understanding the language, like I think deconstructing it and then not having anything to put in its place is, I mean, in every, in their perspective, maybe that they're putting something in its place, but that's the whole debate of postmodern mm-hmm. art versus, you know, like I went to an arts high school, I remember, and I remember fine arts students and visual arts who would like constantly be creating these art pieces and showing these exhibits of like, just really, you know, they never had to prove, they had to render a particular thing realistically, for example. They didn't have to cut their chops in the, in the realism and portraiture before they went into geometric shapes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And that to me is kind of the equivalent of what I'm trying to communicate with, with Brad, like he can do that. He's put in his time and he has his swing yeah. shots before he went post hard bop. Yeah. And even beyond post hard bop. I feel that Brad, he, he bred this school of, of piano player, like, like white piano player intellectual who doesn't mm-hmm. want to learn how to swing because he's not black and he's ashamed of being white. Like that whole stereotype. Like, I feel like he tapped into that kind of guy uh, and bred thousands of like college students on the East coast who want to play like Brad, like, Oh, I'm going to learn all his licks and go to college and do that. But I'm not going to do what he did. Like it's a cliche, like going back and learning your heroes, heroes, that's a cliche, but it's true. It's, it's, yeah. it's a cliche for a reason. And uh, yeah, he, it's like he bred a bunch of Brad clones who didn't get the heart <laughs> of what he's really about of what he's capable of. And Brad specifically, because He's like one of the most thorough pianists, just studied jazz pianists of all time. I mean, I didn't expect to talk about Brad so much in this interview. It's okay. It's okay. Since we brought up these white clones, jazz historically, music of African-Americans. And now I would say in 2020, the music of African-Americans is hip hop. So where does that leave jazz? I'm the wrong person to ask about that. I currently, when I listen to hip hop, I don't hear that integrity of a lineage, of a language lineage, of a tradition lineage. Tradition, I guess, is the word that I'm surprised I haven't used yet. To me, is really important in preserving when you're trying to build on that. I don't really hear it, you know? With that said, the guy who pretty much pioneers that has pioneered that in the past few years, Robert Glasper, he's a studied cat. Like he, 
he can right. play jazz. <laughs> like he's released majorly informed, educated jazz trio records that interpret songbook repertoire at a really high level. But as far as like the hip hop side, like I still don't hear that. It doesn't inspire me in that way. You know, I think what I was trying to get at was you've talked about these white Meldau clones and I'm saying oh, yeah. if, if in 2020 hip hop is now the music of black Americans rather than jazz, like if, if we had to pick a, a music that embodies being African-American right now, I would say it's more hip hop than jazz. But regardless, the question is, are there issues of race and color in jazz now in 2020? Well, is it still a consideration know, right now in the jazz world, whether you're white or Asian or black? There shouldn't be. And I normally don't like to delve into politics during these interviews, but considering that you are more well-informed than the average interviewer, I will entertain it. Uh, and it is a core issue that is debated in the jazz community, and you can't really escape it uh, as far as the conversation goes, especially on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I don't think it's healthy because I think it demonizes people who are genuinely interested in participating in this art form, whether it's as a listener or a musician. But at the same time, it's also a great marketing tool, you know, mm. to conclude it in a more eloquent way. Um, it exists. You can't escape it, especially if you are in any way part of the jazz community. And I think it is unhealthy to capitalize that to at the expense of others. You know, I think the music, though born out of that strife and born out of that conflict that you should never forget and you should never take it for granted. I don't think it's healthy <laughs> to like capitalize that as a way of rallying your, your people and, and demonizing people who like didn't do anything wrong. That's, that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take me through the process of developing, working on a tune. You have a standard in front of you, right? It's a known standard. What are the priorities when you approach that piece of music? The melody. The melody, uh, as well as making your own statement while keeping that melody extremely coherent and fluid. I guess I can use Girl Talk as an example. I made a point of crafting these Tatum-esque left-hand lines that are pretty busy. Uh, they're biting and they're under the the melody. Like the melody doesn't get right. thrown out because I'm trying to play a bunch on my left hand, but that's something that you hear Art Tatum do a lot. And in fact, I was just checking out a transcription. I was revisiting a transcription I did of his on In a Sentimental Mood. And he's always playing these like super fast chromatic left hand lines under under the melody and you can hear the melody very clearly and to me that's a very interesting way of communicating the song because there's so much chaos uh but you can still follow that that's just one interpretation i mean there are so many different ways of going about it approaching standards through the lenses of these different pianists such as art tatum uh can really 
give you these varying perspectives, you know, contrast that with the way Hank Jones does it. He's like the epitome of elegance and lyricism, and he approaches it in the most classy way of possible. When you talk about melody, he doesn't have anything dilute that. It's extremely pure and sophisticated. I like to think about the standards in which those guys play it. I think Bill Sharlap is a great example of interpreting standards in that he is he actually comes from a Broadway background, unlike, you know, Hank Jones and Art Tatum. So he has a more like he still has jazz pedigree, but he is definitely because of his Broadway background, he brings all these little things to it that are like like verses that other jazz musicians would never want to bring to it. So as far as what I like to do, I try to just work with a blank slate and uh, maybe all that influence and all that knowledge and all that studying comes through. But, you know, Richard Rogers' songbook, when I did that, that was like my first experiment on interpreting the songbook. Um, and I consider that to just be an experiment. I don't really consider, I don't really identify with it right now. I mean, that was when I was like 19. So <laughs> you backing uh, off that? Are you backing off that early opus, Connie? Uh, yeah, I do. And I hate it when people bring it up and I wish I could take it off the Internet. But <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I mean, I, I made that mainly as a business card to get uh, to get restaurant gigs. Sure. That's all I did. Um, and the next album, Crime Zone, that was all like pretty much original music. American songbook music is is really crazy and awesome. In studying Art Tatum, all he does is interpret American songbook music. And the melodies themselves are so simple, yet he makes this entire freaking crazy orchestra out of every single one. And he doesn't shy away from any key. He does it in like all 12 keys. And that is super awesome. Lately, that's been what's on my mind as far as American songbook music. Those songbook songs... You know, I guess they become part of the bedrock because there's always a new way into them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are the vehicle in which the very one of the first vehicles in which jazz musicians use to um, to interpret and express themselves. And it's that's what makes jazz so inspiring in that you have infinite ways of interpreting it. You can interpret it in a much more subdued Hank Jones style. You can interpret it in much more out there, chaotic Artatum styles, or you can deconstruct it completely and not even acknowledge the traditional harmony and just go your own way. Doesn't mean people have to like it, but you can still say it's based on yesterday's. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you, you can't really be a legitimate jazz musician unless you learn how to play a play a standard. It's pretty one-on-one. Your prioritization and penchant for melody reminds me of Thelonious Monk. His solos were always, always melody-based. You always knew exactly where you were, even as a listener in mm -hmm. the in the 16, you know? 
Yeah. Monk is a revolutionary composer. Uh, as far as an improviser, I'm, I try not to emulate Monk. I think he's extremely unique in his, like the way his brain worked in organizing intervals and in melodies. Like that's kind of, I guess, the most defining trait of Monk's music, as well as his really unconventional way of syncopating, at least during his time. You know, he really made that jagged over the bar line syncopation more acceptable in mainstream jazz but like i would say melodically as an improviser i would still prefer to listen to someone like hank jones or or red garland you know those guys to me are like super lyrical kenny barron is super lyrical you know it's funny though when i in talking about melody because when i compose my music i'm all about vibe so Mm. Quantify what vibe is. I know that's not melody, but what are the things that go into vibe? Rhythm, creating a, a rhythm, a, a rhythmic structure. I mean, a lot of my music is modal, right? So modal automatically sort of changes up the priorities in a composition or like in a performance where you have a static sound, but the development is purely rhythmic. And I feel like I should have said this already that you know, rhythm plays an, an inextricable role in defining this language, the language that I, I value, because it's like the baseline in which musicians interact with. So like the vibe I'm talking about is like, for example, the title track of Iron Starlet, I wrote it initially to be in a particular aesthetic. So vibe and aesthetic, a musical aesthetic to be like the Young Lions vibe, the Young Lions led by Wynton Marsalis of the late 80s and 90s. My Approach is primarily informed by the drum piano dynamic because I'm like a drum centric pianist. I'm very percussive oriented. So like I wrote this tune and I said, I want this to be at a tempo and I want this to feel and groove like like Kenny Kirkland and Jeff Tane Watts. We want that buoyancy. We want that like rub and texture where it's like kind of rough around the edges. Uh, it's like tough and primal. So those are like the kind of words that I'm thinking of when I'm, I, I craft something like Iron Starlet, because to me, the melody of Iron Starlet, it's about creating like um, an attitude. When I created the melody of melody of that tune, I thought, how can we bring a swaggering attitude that comes from something like Freddie Hubbard? Because it's a it's a quartet tune with trumpet, bass, piano, and drums, and I wanted it to have like this toughness to it because I hate it when jazz sounds like sterile and like that white clone college kid. You know, I want mm -hmm. it to sound alive and swinging, but still like intellectually engaging because what's so interesting about the Kenny Kirkland and Jeff Tane Watts sort of dynamic is that it's indirectly informed by like jazz fusion rhythm, but it comes from 
the black soul. Like it comes from that place of, of Elvin Jones of like Afro Cuban shit. Cause I mean, Kenny Kirkland was influenced very uniquely by Afro Cuban rhythms and he was half Puerto Rican. So he kind of came from that and he was really unique in his approach to rhythm because he had like this buoyancy that was super awesome. And that buoyancy informed that particular track, Iron Starlet. So like, that's one example of me saying like, oh, this tune is not going to be just about the melody. You know, it's not going to, that's not going to be the main vehicle for progression. It's going to be about that, like momentum is that is created by like a really freaking tight trio. The compositions on Iron Starler are mainly based on like my inspiration in aesthetic style, creating soundscapes that are based on the social chemistry, particularly of rhythm sections. The only songbook tune that's even on the album is actually not even arranged by myself. It was arranged by Bill Wysaski. So my most recent acquaintance right now with with the songbook repertoire is probably what I mentioned already earlier is Hank Jones and Art Tatum because I'm studying a lot of solo piano and when you play solo piano of course you're going to play songbook music like that is like the baseline it's it's amazing how unlimited the uh the range you have to interpret as a solo pianist on just really simple melodies and really simple harmony like T for two for example I just arranged mm-hmm. an entire piano solo thing based just on what Art Tatum does in his style. And like, it's crazy. Like, there's not really much going on, yet there's so much going on. Like, he's able to... Yeah, that's a wild, that's a wild arrangement. Yeah, he. it's just really insane because the tune can be so cheesy. Like, it can be so ridiculously stupid. It's like two, five, two, five, one, four, three, six. It's like, shut up. But then when you hear Artatum do it, he's not even like not playing the changes. He's still playing the changes. He doesn't yeah. like go that really that out there. Sure, maybe he'll go to like a flat two minor something, but it's like basic and he still makes it sound ridiculous. I guess I'm in a state of like major study right now when it comes to interpreting the songbook repertoire. Yeah. So that's that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey, what's the difference for you in a solo piano or, or in like say a trio setting, how does that shift your priorities or your paradigm? Well, my answer is pretty obvious. I mean, you, you, you move the bass. I mean, you have to fill it out. But at the same time, aside from just the more obvious, like fill out the bass, blah, 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 uh, you just have so much more freedom to work. I mean, you can do anything. You don't have to worry about how other people interpret the time, which is so important. Like I spent pretty much the first freaking eight, nine, ten years, which is pretty much until now crazy, uh, studying just time like I spent 
very little time on technique and very little time on playing super fast and playing super a lot until very recently because it was kind of ingrained early on how important it was to learn to not just how to play the language of jazz, but also learn how to play it with the correct accent. You know, I hear so many horrendous classical recordings of jazz pieces and they're like <laughs> swinging on the opposite side of the beat. And I'm like, yep. what the hell are you doing? Yep. Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, time and interpreting time, being conscious of how other people play their time. And even when people are playing on top constantly or behind constantly, you still have to like be true to who you are as a rhythm player. Like you still have to stay true to where you are as a, in where you place your beat. Because to me, that is like the defining trait of any, of any musician. Like you can have your vocabulary, you can have whatever, but how I know Kenny Kirkland is Kenny Kirkland is his beat and Mulgrew Miller, his beat. Even when you're not a drummer and you're playing a harmonic instrument, it's all about where you place the pocket. You know, I remember playing with so many different cats before quarantine and I would be like thinking, man, it'd be great if I could play like this, but because these players are playing like this, I have to compromise. So when you're playing solo, you don't have to worry about that. You can define where the time is. And what's great about having two hands with 10 fingers is that you can decide with your left hand where to put your beat in your baseline and then interpret differently with your right hand and stretch the quarter note and stretch the eighth note and stretch the triplet. And that's like part of what makes the freedom of solo piano so much fun. Because I guess uh, at my core, I'm a really like domineering person. So like, I like to decide things the way they are. And I guess that's why I'm the artist and I'm not usually a side man because I like to decide how things are. Um, <laughs> and I've just accepted that about myself. So that's like the really fun thing about playing solo piano. Um, but with more freedom comes more responsibility. So that's why I've been studying solo piano so much during this time, because you have to know a lot. And that was actually quoted by McCoy Tanner, I think, on his Facebook page a while ago. And I was like, wow, that's a great quote. When you have more freedom, you have more responsibility. So that's why you have to shed more. So, yeah, it's fun but also extremely daunting. You, you know, when you leave space, you truly are leaving space. Whereas when you're leaving space, when you're improvising in a group, there's still music happening. The bass is still playing, the drums are still still playing. So when you leave space, it becomes very dramatic and you have to be careful with when you do it. So it's different, but it's fun. And as much as I miss playing with my trio, which I do tremendously, especially because uh, Bill just moved to Boston, so we won't be playing together that much. And man, Ivan, I miss Ivan too. He's he's an amazing bassist, super full sound. God, I miss playing with them. Yeah. Uh, it's it can get lonely, but I think this is what makes me love being a pianist because I feel yeah. like it's more challenging as a bassist or a drummer to play solo. It's nearly impossible. I mean, unless you are you're really creative, which is definitely possible to think outside the box. But as a pianist, like. The first art that you learn is solo piano, so it's the best instrument, I think, to be alone with, I think.
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. In order, we heard clips from McCoy Tyner performing Blues on the Corner from the album The Real McCoy on Blue Note. Brad Meldow Trio performing August Ending, or perhaps August Ending, on Nonesuch. The title tracks from Connie Hahn's albums Crime Zone and the forthcoming Iron Starlet, which streets June 12th, both on Mac Avenue, and Art Tatum performing Tea for Two on Columbia Records. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.